Hey, do you like weird movies? You do? Have you heard of Vinegar Syndrome? Find them online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. They've got a simple three-step process that I call the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an amazingly large film archive consisting of thousands of 35 and 16 millimeter negatives and prints and are actively finding films that are underappreciated, undervalued, and underseen. So many of their releases have never seen the light of day since VHS, and they're restoring them to all their glory. Some of these films do not have the right to look as good as they do, but they do. I'm looking at you, corpse grinders. Vinegar Syndrome has their own method of restoration where their goal is to recreate the theatrical experience as best as they can. With their own in-house lab, they scan, color grade, and restore each title personally. You'll never see any grain reduction and digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome is a very exciting label, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning, and we love them for it. Check out their website today and pick up your copies of Rudy Raymore's Dolomite films, just in time for the new Netflix movie Dolomite Is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy. Also available is Hell Comes to Frogtown, starring Rowdy Rowdy Piper, James Hong's The Vineyard, Pledge Night, Lust in the Dust, starring Divine, Putney Swope, The Amityville Cursed Collection, and much, much more. Also, don't forget to pre-order your copy of Tammy and the T-Rex in glorious 4K Ultra High Definition, or Blu-ray, and The oh, Angel shit. Collection. Once again, be sure to visit them at www.vinegarsyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Let them know your good friend Michael sent you. Arrow Films is a leading independent entertainment distribution company established in 1991, operating in the UK, the Republic of Ireland, United States of America, and Canada. Arrow Films is dedicated to supporting upcoming and established filmmakers of dynamic new cinema and developing an inviolable slate of quality films that enjoy a lasting legacy across its award-winning branded labels, channels, and platforms. Arrow Films is also a leading restorer and theatrical distributor of classic and cult horror films, including landmark titles such as the 25th anniversary reissue of Cinema Paradiso, the 15th anniversary reissue of Donnie Darko, and the 30th anniversary reissue of Hellraiser. These lovingly restored films are brought back into cinemas nationwide with brand new look campaigns with wide-reaching distribution, including outdoor event status screenings at various cultural festivals and as one-off bookings in local repertory cinemas and film societies. Aerofilms is also widely considered to be the global market leader in the premium home entertainment market fueled by passionate and expert curation aligned with state-of-the-art in-house film restoration, resulting in highly sought-after bespoke Blu-ray editions of classic cult and horror films across its Aero Video and Aero Academy branded labels. Beloved by collectors, these ever-expanding brands continue to delight their growing international fan base with regular interactive live events, festival sponsorship, and retail stands presence. Our offering extends to truly limited edition box sets, as well as associated spin-off products, now including books and vinyl records. We are so happy to have Aero Video as one of our new sponsors. You can find them at www.aerofilms.com. While you're there, be sure to pick up some cool titles. For example, 
They have the brand new American Werewolf in London collection, which is beautiful. The complete Sartana collection. Hellraiser 1, 2, and 3. Toys are not for children. A new edition of Al Pacino's Cruising. And let's not forget a limited edition copy of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and a limited edition copy of RoboCop. There's so much more I can't even get into them all, but trust me when I say they're fantastic. And we couldn't be happier to have them. So once again, visit Aerofilms at www.aerofilms.com and check out all of their brands from Aero Video, Aero Academy, Aero Films, and Aero TV. Today's episode of The Shameless Picture Show is sponsored by Mill Creek Entertainment. Mill Creek is the industry leader when it comes to value price DVD and Blu-ray features and compilations. They have one of the largest catalogs out there, ranging from kids programming, classic films and television, independent cinema, documentary, and Latino cinema. Hell, they even produce their own content in-house. Mill Creek is a trusted partner with some of our favorite studios, including Sony Pictures, Walt Disney Entertainment, Warner Brothers, CBS Home Entertainment, and many more. And the best part about Mill Creek is how easy they are to find. Mill Creek has deals with thousands of big box stores, grocery stores, drug stores, and practically any other retailer you can imagine. Trust me when I say I've owned plenty throughout my time as a collector without even realizing it. They're a name I can trust. Some of my favorite releases include Can't Hardly Wait, Night of the Living Dead, House on Haunted Hill from their Vincent Price collection, the complete series of Quantum Leap, the complete series of The Secret World of Alex Mack, and of course, you're the hunter from the future. Head over to www.millcreekent.com, that's millcreekent.com, and see what their collection has to offer. I guarantee you'll find something great. So how have you been, Michael? I've been good. Usually Today's you ask me, but I day. got you. <laughs> I know, you're taking the host ah. role. Uh, I've been good. Um, today has been a pretty crazy day. I had the day off of work, and I knew I had to take my mom to... Ooh, look, look what else Ron has to say. <gasps> Boom. We can download the video and audio after. Beep, 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 beep. I like that. I like, you know, <laughs> bop, bring up comments. <laughs> bop, bring up comments. Uh, but no, I had, I had to take my mom to get a COVID test because she has to have surgery on Sunday and she has to quarantine herself for a couple oh. of days, obviously. Well, best of and I was like, best wishes to your mom. and Thank you. And I was like, I know this is going to be a kind of a little bit of a bummer of a day. And uh, like last night, I, I worked all day yesterday and then came home and did an interview with the professional wrestler, Derek St. Holmes Esquire. Nice. And we talked about cult film professional wrestling collector mentality we talked about a lot and that's going to be an upcoming episode um but uh so i was like i have no have had no free time to myself so i went to my buddy kyle's house and we watched wrestling for like two or three hours got cousins and (laughs) we talked about vincent price uh and And then cousin uh, subs Yep, I took my mom for a test. I'm doing this, and then since it's our house guest Emma's birthday, I'm making her fudge afterwards. Oh, so I've got a busy day. Happy birthday! Yeah, I don't know if she's watching this, but happy birthday, Emma! <laughs> Enjoy your fudge. <laughs> well, once it's made, <laughs> there is no fudge to be had thus far. Um, but uh, yeah, so how have you been, Nick? Uh, well, not great. <laughs> 
Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, you know, typically, you're just hearing me, but for those of you watching, uh, if, if you're not familiar with me, um, I have tremors, and typically they're just in my hands, um, but it will come and go in my neck a lot. And so those of you watching me now, I look like a bobblehead, um, but it flares up when I'm really anxious, and with all of this COVID stuff and, and the kids and work um it's been really tough and my anxiety is spiked i had a bunch of anxiety attacks last week um which is new for me so i say all that to say i'm going back to therapy and i think it's just a good thing to talk about and yeah, other people normalize yes um i never heard especially men i've never really heard them talk about going to therapy and I do know s some men that go to therapy um, but I just wanted to help break that down a tiny bit for anyone listening like it's okay and it's really good for me and I'm excited to go back and hopefully develop some tools to deal with the anxiety to prevent the attacks that's good it's we as a as a, as a world we have to normalize talking about our feelings and talking about when we need help and you know I'm, since we're being real here like yeah, I, why not? I, I want you to take care of yourself and nick Thank because you. you know the you know i, I don't think it's a, a secret that when you took a hiatus from the show it's because you weren't taking the best care of yes, yourself yeah. And you, you you needed that time to get away and to deal with some stuff. And the hope is that if you're constantly taking care of yourself, that you won't be gone for a while. Right. And it's so much more and, important in this time when we are, uh, like, everybody's normal is not, is disrupted. And mm -hmm. we're, you know, it's affecting our lives in different ways um, where some people have lost jobs and are having financial difficulties like I've been lucky enough to keep my job but in order mm -hmm. for our organization to remain solvent um, it's meant um, having a much in for me and the stability and the work-life separation that I need um, I'm not getting that right now and I'm working like mm -hmm. I've worked like seven days a week for the last month straight and it's That's insane. yeah it's it's has been part of that equation well we are gonna get you regulated yay yeah regulate me <laughs> uh yeah and you know it's like like you said talking about therapy is common ron says right here he's all about therapy yes so you know i think uh you know, the more we talk about it, the better. Like, I'm not personally in therapy, but, you know, I know a lot of people who are, and I know how beneficial it is. And I'm sure I could even probably benefit from it. I just, you know, with one person in the family already being in it, you know, we don't necessarily have the money for two. <laughs> but, you know, I'd rather I'd rather get people who de who de who actually need it at this moment covered. Right, right. Well, I'm bouncy. It's, I mean, there's... comfortable in this chair. There's an infinite amount of reasons to go and an infinite amount of reasons not to go. Um, but my, my hope for those listening is if you are feeling challenged emotionally, um, 
to consider it ser- to to seriously consider it to to not don't stop yourself from going just because oh I don't need that or oh I don't have time for that or I don't know mm-hmm. if it's gonna help like think about it go talk to somebody a couple times see if it's and it does take a couple times to start to, for the gears to start ooh. No, sorry. I, I think I'm going to fix the audio issue earlier. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, just so anyways, if, if you're having a hard time, consider it more seriously than you may have in the past, and that's what I had to do to finally go, and it has helped me. Yeah. Well, that's great, so. There man. we go. <laughs> yeah, like while you may not necessarily be feeling good right this moment, you're on the path yeah. to feeling and, good. And this week has been much better. And, you know, we're all about positive lifestyles on this this show. I've talked openly about how I've had to change things up in my own life. I'm, like, at this point, like 75, 80% vegetarian that I had to do for for health reasons. It's not helped me lose any weight, (laughs) but I feel healthy. I'm still still a big about Health and weight are two very, very different things. Mm -hmm. And I think you are gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you. Um, was there anything else you wanted to talk about, Nick, that's um, uh, important to not our topic? I mean, outside of society crumbling around us. Well, there is, well, funny enough, I don't remember if you, when I did, my last live stream I did, um, I did it, like, right after the, like, right after the election results, like, came up, and I, I started off my movie chat with talking about Biden winning the election, and a buddy of mine jumped on the chat and be like, shameless picture show with the scoop. <laughs> you need one of those hats with the little tags that say press on it? Oh, man, I was really hoping I could get, like, the MTV This just like, in. <laughs> I was really hoping to get like the MTV news, like like doom 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 doom, doom burst. <laughs> and and uh, the shameless picture show has called the state of Arizona. <laughs> they gotta make a Citizen Kane style movie just about us <laughs> this podcast. Rosebud. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> One day, one day, if they ever make a movie about this fledgling podcast, like, what do you want it to be like? Shoot it like Citizen Kane. <laughs> I think make this the Citizen Kane of podcast movies. Damn I it. think our story is epic enough to warrant that. Yes. Yeah, like we need the bit. We need the the deepest focus that we can possibly get, and shoot it in black and white. And I want to play the role. <laughs> we can recast Nick, but I want to play me. <laughs> Alan Tudyk is would be a fabulous yeah. Nick Richards, I think. Actually, I can see yeah. that. Like, get me the whenever this movie's made, get me the the surviving Mankiewicz <laughs> that can write this script for me. <laughs> Whichever Mankiewicz is still alive, I'll take any Mankiewicz you got. And we gotta dig Greg Toland up and make him shoot it. <laughs> get your zombie hands on a camera. Uh. Uh. Anyway, so we're not talking about a Citizen Kane. That's how we, we are. are here. <laughs> yeah, we are here to talk about another movie. So why don't I take a sip of Monster Energy Zero Ultra Zero Sugar for the working I'm man? I'm going to drink my water. Uh, Raina got me, both of us, these 64-ounce Hydro Flasks. They're enormous. And I like the, uh, the Shameless Picture Show sticker, which can be yours <gasps> for as low as a $5 donation to our Patreon. Yes. 
This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shameless Picture Show. A live episode. I am Michael Byers. What? A live episode. Of yes, the hello and welcome Picture. to a live episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers, live and in color. And with me, as always, is a man who's been wearing the same underwear since Tuesday. <laughs> Nick Richards. Also, I'm in black and white. Well, you know, only if you're colorblind. Um... On today's episode of the Shameless Picture Show, we wanted to get in the holiday spirit. Thanksgiving is right around the corner, so Nick chose a film that's not only a Thanksgiving-themed movie, but one that is on both of our Shamelists, which is actually very surprising to me. (laughs) John Hughes, classic, I guess at this point, planes, trains, and automobiles. Neil Page is a high-level executive on a business trip in New York City, right before Thanksgiving, and promised his family he'd make it home to Chicago in time for the festivities. Neil booked his flight a little tight, but he's confident he can make it. That is, until he has a slight snafu with a cab, and it's taken by a traveling businessman named named Del Griffith. I can't talk. This is only the start of their journey, as we find out both Neil and Del's lives will be intertwined. Neil is uptight and easily annoyed, while Del is aloof and very chatty. Will they ever get home? Will they end up killing each other? Will they ever find a commonality? Written and directed by master craftsman John Hughes, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was his fifth directorial hit in a row and marked a change of tone for Hughes, as he had been known as the teen angst filmmaker up until this point. However, Hughes' fingerprints are are all over this script, focusing on on the outcasts of the world and how different people, when forced together, can find common ground in understanding amongst themselves. The film was also a critical success and was loved by critics Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, who raved about the performances by John Candy and Steve Martin. The film stars, as said, Steve Martin and John Candy, with a really weird score by Ira Newman, and cinematography by Donald Peterman. From 1987, this is John Hughes's film, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. During holiday travel, some people get delirious. Some get delayed. And some get Del Griffith. American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. Neil Page got all three. I was on my way home to spend a nice holiday with my family. Instead, I'm in a motel bed with a stranger. So instead of Thanksgiving with his family, he's spending three days with the turkey. Happy clams just whistling down the road. Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, and the Martoni family. Paramount Pictures presents Wilma! Steve Martin. You ever been to Hawaii? Yeah. You see Don Ho while you were there? See the second show, that's the best one. Is that right? Yeah. John Candy. Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. In a new film by John Hughes. Planes, trains, and automobiles. See that Bears game last week? Yeah, hello game. Hello game. Um, 
So, Nick, this is on both of our shit lists. <laughs> and oh, hold on. Sorry, you were muted. My oh, mistake. Okay. And <laughs> I unmuted. <laughs> well, thank you. Lord it over me with all of your muting power. <laughs> I've got the um, Oh, good. We have we have confirmation that the yes! audio did in fact work. Thank you, Dave. Actually, Dave was one of my was a, a, a sales manager at one of the Best Buys. I was nice helping at, helping at. Thanks. Dave. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, so as is typical when uh, we watch a film that's on my shame list, I did not take notes. So if I I didn't take notes either. If we trash and burn and have nothing to talk about, at least we're not live. Oh, yeah. Good thing. <laughs> good thing. Um, so. Yeah, because I don't say like I I was kind of in a weird place when I put the movie on. Like I I just wanted something kind of fun and relaxing to watch. I wasn't really in the mood to to take notes, and I was like, you know, if this this is gonna sound really pretentious to me, if this movie is worth conversation, <laughs> we'll be able to talk about it regardless of notes. And I'm now realizing that was maybe a dumb choice. But anyways, <laughs> Nick, what did you think? of planes trains and automobiles and i will say i'm really surprised you hadn't seen this film because i would have sworn that this would be like a movie you you would have loved uh when when i was watching it i had a similar vibe in that um as for for those of you listening that don't listen to every episode and haven't heard me and michael mention it five million times um i we met at a film festival um that we both had projects in and my film was normal which is a road trip comedy or has a road trip comedy element to it and so i was seeing some parallels there and i thought to myself boy had i watched this before i made normal i would have sworn that normal was in part inspired by it interesting interesting i can definitely see the commonalities between your film and normal i would never have thought about it yeah. to be honest with you but um so but i don't know why i had such an aversion to seeing this oh. film it was never that like i didn't want to see it um i actually didn't even realize that john hughes made uh, this nor did i and and as we've done this show i find myself repeatedly saying oh john hughes did that too like the man has done every film I've never watched. Yeah. 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 And it's like, it's so weird because I'm such a big fan of John Hughes' work that it's 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 actually kind of shocking to me how many blind spots there are. Because, like, I've seen his big films, you know, both writing and directing. And I guess technically this is considered a big film. But, like, I've seen, okay, I've never seen Mr. Mom, which he wrote. I've seen oh, I didn't know he wrote National that. Lampoon's Vacation. Yeah. I've, I've seen 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, European Vacation. I've seen Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Pewer's Day Off. I've now seen Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I've seen The Great Outdoors, Uncle Buck, Christmas Vacation, Home Alone. And then some of the stuff later on in his career, not as much. <laughs> but, you know, like, uh, I, 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 apparently he wrote Beethoven, which I didn't oh, realize. Right? Like every movie in the 80s and 90s. Is... Yeah, yeah. And it's like, and looking at, you know, I was even thinking, I was like, oh, some of his later films I hadn't seen, but like, he fucking wrote, he, he wrote and produced Flubber. <laughs> he wrote and produced 101 Dalmatians. How did I not know wow. this? He wrote and produced the Miracle on 34th Street remake. Oh, wow. He wrote, he wrote Home Alone 3? <laughs> really? Okay, that's rather surprising <laughs> to me. 
so so in, to answer your original question my original thoughts is this film is a piece of garbage but only for one reason Th why is that they didn't use an oxford comma in the title it's planes it's comma plain. trains ampersand automobiles versus planes comma trains comma ampersand automobiles interesting <laughs> i'd never i've always suck with with having i i always kind of suck with having uh when to put a comma <laughs> after and uh when not to put a comma after i, like, I, I i'm i use i i use the, an app on the on the computer that fixes it i use grammarly it tells me when to put the comma to to, to be fair uh it's completely gra grammatically legal to not put a comma there, but there are, is a subsect of grammar nerds that are very pretentious about making sure that second comma goes in, and I'm one of them. And I, I say it all in jest, like it, I actually enjoyed the film, but um, yeah, <laughs> this film was bullshit. It didn't use comma. Fuck John Hughes. You use that Oxford comma. Fuck John Hughes. You think you're a good writer? You don't know how to use the Oxford comma. <laughs> so kind of harsh, you know. Right? So, you don't know. John Hughes's widow could be watching this right now and like crying because be like, hey, he had the Oxford comma in his draft, but they didn't think it worked as part of it. Franklin draft. Oxford, the creator of the Oxford comma, actually. You nerd. No, I'm, I'm making this up. Actually <laughs> killed John Hughes's wife's family, and that's why he refused to use it. I got a fun story about that. Not not about uh, Hector do. Oxford or whatever, but it's more about mispronounced, uh, misspelt titles. So the movie Inglorious Bastards oh, always yeah. frustrated the shit out of me because it's so wrong in terms of how it's spelled. I almost said wrongly, and I'm going to comment on someone's spelling. It is not goodly. Um, it is not goodly enough. It did not embiggen the spirit of man. Um, but. So he claims that that was an intentional choice, or that's what they say. People say, "Oh, it's an intentional choice." Uh, maybe it wasn't him, but like everyone's like, "Oh, this is an intentional choice to to separate it from the film that he's loosely basing it off of." I read the script. One, the title was handwritten, <laughs> and there are spelling errors throughout that entire fucking <laughs> script. So I firmly believe he just misspelled the words, and they're like, "Hey, that's cool. We're gonna keep that." <laughs> What's the the so, uh, not reverse continuity, but um, maybe that is the phrase when you like make something make sense after the fact. Mm. I'm trying to get the lighting right on my face. <laughs> oh. um, <laughs> Filmmakers, <laughs> who are you gonna do? Um, um, so, but I, I, mm. um, so my actual thoughts on the film: <clears throat> enjoyable is funny. Tip in in many ways, typical John Hughes piece but it had some really bizarre moments in it that do tell i've never like i've always not that i've gotten into big discussions with people about planes trains and automobiles um but <clears throat> all of my experience with it up till this point has been oh lighthearted steve martin john candy road trip comedy like that's it but there are some moments in here that were really strange for me that I haven't quite wrapped my head around. And they tend to come towards the end. One of them, and you mentioned the soundtrack. 
is when they start looping in Steve Martin saying, uh, you're messing with the wrong guy. Oh my, I, oh my God, that was weird. And it's, yes. it starts like, like you can almost feel him like coming apart at the seams in a way that went beyond the like, oh, I'm having a really bad road trip vibe. You know, the first time I heard that yeah. they did it in a wide shot, and I was like, "Did he just?" Say right. Because <laughs> I remember the first time I heard it was when he was wandering around the, the rental car. Yeah, lot, yep. And they like they showed a wide shot, I think, and it was like, and You're I heard that, and like, guy. <laughs> I'm like, who's he threatening? <laughs> I will say, I I really enjoyed the I enjoyed the film more than I thought because I will admit. There, and to some extent, and I'm still trying to get over this, I am in a lot of ways still a pretentious movie person, where <clears throat> when a film is recommended to me my entire life, I sometimes have a slight aversion to it. Like, oh, you want me to like this film, eh? Well, fuck you. It's it's like when everyone's like, oh, you gotta see Die Hard. Like, I've seen so much of Die Hard that I feel like I've seen it, but I've never sat down to watch it all the way. Okay. And, and and now that it's uh, everyone's like, it's the best Christmas. Oh my god, movie. you gotta see and Die I'm Hard. Like, yeah, so it's like it was like I'm gonna hold off. <laughs> and I, I will say it now: the people who think Die Hard is the best Christmas movie are just people who are too afraid to admit that they like Christmas movies. <laughs> Anyways, um. For me, it's like, you know, I, I always heard about this film, and I always like John Candy, but this might be a controversial opinion. I've never been blown away by John Candy. It's like he's always really likable. Yeah. He's a guy yep. that I, I feel like I want to hang out with, but I I, I think of, um, you know, like Uncle Buck, which is a film that I, I grew up seeing. I never liked Uncle Buck as much as everyone else did. And maybe I'd feel different now because now – as an adult, maybe I could see different levels to it, but like I, for me, like my favorite John Candy movie was like Spaceballs because it's like, oh, he's funny in that movie because his um, name's Barf. <laughs> yeah, seeing this movie and then thinking back about to the movie Only the Lonely, I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to get why John Candy was such a big deal because he kind of rode this line of not only being funny but being real. And I was talking to someone recently. It was actually I was talking um, on my my last live episode where I was talking about the movie Big Bully with Rick Moranis and uh, Tom Arnold. Okay, and how not necessarily that setup but like my, my favorite type of comedy is a film that in all intents and purposes at the beginning of the film is rooted in a real world with real human problems and then it can kind of devolve and get crazier from there you know starting off completely slapstick <clears throat> starting off completely in a world where or with problems that I can't wrap my head around don't work with me Dude. so like, that's actually <laughs> the one thing I really like about John Hughes's world any of his films is they start off in a place that feels real and feels that i can right. relate to um and i think the way that john candy can ride this level of being annoying in a lot of <laughs> cases being funny and then just kind of ganking your heart out a little bit um is really good is is, is great um and we can kind of talk about this as we go on my biggest complaint with the film is one i they, they they rectify it near the end. I don't think either character is all that likable, to be completely honest. Um, no. John Candy's character, Dell is far more likable 
but at the same time, it's still not that likable. Um, and it has, and I've been noticing this because I had just watched Weird Science uh, last night into this morning. I broke it up into two, which another John Hughes film. And John Hughes, I would love to dig deeper into this. Has really weird scripting structure. Okay. Um, I haven't watched enough of his films as a adult who has made films to be able to really weigh in on that. It's something that I'm just noticing more so now. Where there's times in in some of it, like let's use Weird Science as an example, where the film feels like it should have ended at at a certain point and then it continues on and has a different wrap-up than what's traditionally used which is not necessarily a bad thing it's just unique or using planes trains and automobiles as an example dell's big moment his big scene where he has uh you can't hurt me that heartbreaking scene is in like the first 30 minutes of the film yeah yep Maybe first 40. I don't remember for and, sure. It was pretty early in the film. And then, like, the bulk, like, 80 to 85% of it is where we made some progress on the trip and something goes wrong. And we made some progress on the trip and something goes wrong. Mm. Like, there's not a lot of plot or emotional development during that time. You get his, his heartbreaking speech at the beginning and then at the tail end when it all connects for Steve Martin that... Uh, Something there's more to Dell's story than what he's let on, which makes him go back and say, "Why are you here?" And there's the big reveal about his wife. Um, yeah, and actually, I, and I have the scene that that scene pulled up. If we want to let's let's do it. <laughs> Why? Why? That's it. If I don't clear my sinuses, I'll snore all night. Gee, if your kid spills his milk, what do you do? Slap him in the head? What? What? What What is that supposed to mean? You're not a very tolerant person. Look, you've been under my skin since New York, starting with ripping off my cab. God, you're a tight ass. How'd you like a mouthful of teeth? Oh, and hostile, too. Nice personality combination, hostile and intolerant. That's borderline criminal. Screw you. You spilled beer all over the bed, you smoke, you, you, you mess up the bathroom. Well, who let you stay in the room? I even let you pay for it so you wouldn't feel like an intruder, which you most certainly are. I'm an intruder. Yes, you're an intruder. I was having a perfectly nice trip until you walked into my life. I walked into your life. Who was that who talked my ear off on the plane? Who was that? I'm curious. Well, who told you to book a room? I did, out of the goodness of my dumb old heart. Boy, you're an ungrateful jackass. Well, go ahead. Sleep in the lobby. See if I care. I hope you wake up so stiff you can't even move. You're no saint. You got a free cab. You got a free room. And someone who'll listen to your boring stories. I mean, didn't you, didn't you notice on the plane when you started talking, eventually I started reading the vomit bag? Didn't that give you some sort of clue, like, hey, maybe this guy's not enjoying it? You know, everything is not an anecdote. You have to discriminate. You choose things that are, that are funny or, or mildly amusing or interesting. You're a miracle. Your stories have none of that. They're not even amusing accidentally. Honey, I'd, li- I'd like you to meet Del Griffith. He's got some amusing anecdotes for you. Oh, and here's a gun so you can blow your brains out. You'll thank me for it. <sighs> I-, I-, I could tolerate any-, any insurance seminar. For days, I could sit there and listen to them go on and on with a big smile on my face. They'd say, how can you stand it? And I'd say, because I've been with Del Griffith. I can take anything. You know what they'd say? They'd say, 
I know what you mean. The shower curtain ring guy. Whoa. It's, it's like going on a date with a chatty Kathy doll. I expect you to have a little string on your chest, you know, that I pull out and have to snap back. Except I wouldn't pull it out and snap it back. You would. Ah, 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 ah. And by the way, you know, when you're, when you're telling these little stories, here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. You want to hurt me? Go right ahead if it makes you feel any better. I'm an easy target. Yeah, you're right. I talk too much. I also listen too much. I could be a cold-hearted cynic like you. But I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Well, you think what you want about me. I'm not changing. I like, I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Because I'm the real article. What you see is what you get. So that scene is, in all intents and purposes, a pretty phenomenal scene. Um, it just feels very unusually placed because it doesn't... It, normally, normally it feels like that scene would go in there and then they would start finding more commonalities amongst themselves. And they get along for a little bit after that. But all intents and purposes, Steve Martin kind of goes back to being a jerk and is a jerk to him until their next hotel trip, realistically. Like, their next time at a hotel where the big news comes through. And and even like and even then, it's like you don't find out. For, like I, I just feel like the, a scene with that much weight to it should have come a little bit later in the movie. And some of the other things that they did to kind of find this common ground should have come sooner if that makes sense um it it made sense i don't know that i'd use the phrase should have i think that i think okay should have the wrong what you're expressing is like that is how it's traditionally done or that that's the setup that we're used to i don't know yes 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 that it's wrong because it did it earlier on in this conversation you were talking about them not being likable characters and mm-hmm. you know i I'd, I'd say they're not particularly likable they're not particularly unlikable but more mm-hmm. importantly than that what i would say is they both they feel, feel real for that reason. very very real and this scene really highlights that um it has so much heart because i think any other film steve martin finally like unloads like you're so annoying you're so annoying John Candy's character in most films would have reacted with anger. And mm-hmm. I think it was so poignant. And, you know, it, in our intro, we were talking about expressing feelings and and uh, being in touch with the emotional side. And yes, John Candy's character is annoying. But, mm-hmm. in and, and we've all been around people that drive us nuts that we have to spend time with and listen to them go on and on and you're like in your head rolling your eyes like how much longer do i have to endure this and steve martin is saying what we want to say in those moments um and i liked that they show both their their flawed sides and their their human you know their 
they're really good traits as well. Um, yeah. And, and this is the one where John Candy, of course, really shines and, and, I, you know, that that's a trait that we should all have a bit more of because we've all felt excluded. We've all felt like we were the one annoying somebody else, too. That's pretty universal. And for him in that moment, to rather than getting angry or leaving or something, he stands up for himself and he says, I like me. That's that's pretty impressive. That's pretty cool. And I think part of the, the John Hughes magic that um makes his stuff special yeah yeah and actually like that that i felt so much in that scene like like i i give ira new new uh i think ira newman's score kind of grief uh sorry ira newborn because it's such, it's kind of a goofy score but the musical number they hit in that scene while maybe a touch heavy-handed worked so beautifully to accentuate what he's feeling and i wanted to read a quote for you from a review that Roger Ebert wrote in the year 2000, November 12, 2000. <clears throat> it was him looking back on Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, okay. which he said was not only one of his favorite movies of that year, but it's his, it was his family's go-to Thanksgiving film. And um, he says, <clears throat> sorry, clearing my throat a little bit. One night, and this is, this is uh, Roger Ebert writing this, one night, a few years after Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was released, I came upon John Candy sitting all by himself in a hotel bar in New York, smoking and drinking, and we talked for a while. We were going to be on the same TV show the next day. He was depressed. People loved him, but he didn't seem to know that, or it wasn't enough. He was a sweet guy, and no one had a word to say against him, but he was down on himself. All he wanted to do was make people laugh, but sometimes he tried too hard, and he hated himself for doing that in some of his films. I thought of Dell. There is so much truth in the role that it transforms the whole movie. Hughes knew it and captured it again in Only the Lonely. And Steve Martin knew it and played straight to it. The movies that last, the ones that we return to, don't always have lofty themes or Byzantine complexities. Sometimes they last because they are arrows straight to the heart. When Neil unleashes that tirade in the motel room and Dell's face saddens, he says, Oh, I see. It is a moment that not only defines Dell's life, but is a turning point in Neil's, because he also is a lonely soul, and too well organized to know it. Strange how much poignancy creeps into this comedy, and only becomes stronger while we're laughing. Yep. Yeah. Like, he... he, he I, I was I was struggling to kind of put into words why that scene was so good. You know, it's it's good from a performance standpoint. It's, it's, it's a good scene, but I knew there was something beneath it. And I... I, I I think the reason I'm I'm resonating so well with this film is because if you were to just Google planes, trains, and automobiles right now, and you'd see some of the really atrocious DVD covers, it makes it seem like a really zany comedy. Right. And and th- that That's element there. is definitely in this film, but it's not yes. what makes it special. Yes, because if it would have been just that film, I would have forgotten yeah. about it. But there was there was something behind John Candy's eyes in that scene, and I saw something in this character that I'd never seen in John Candy as an actor before. And that's like I said, it's not to say I dislike the man. I just didn't see the magic before until I saw this movie. And now it's starting to make sense to me. Yeah. And it makes me want to go back and reevaluate um, some of the performances that maybe I overlooked or, um, you know, like I want to go back and rewatch uncle buck and kind of see maybe there was something I was missing when I saw it originally. And it's for me, it's so fascinating how 
a role can transform an actor and make you want to reevaluate everything they've done. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I kind of got deep there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, when I was reading that, that, that those quotes from uh, Roger Ebert, I kind of got goosebumps. Ooh. It's like, Roger Ebert is a film critic that is off is is definitely respected, though I don't think he sometimes gets the credit he deserves because and that's kind of his own doing because he he kind of reveled in the the last ten years of his life and kind of you know he he saw that he could be a troll on the internet and decided to be so, <laughs> but like when he when he was on his game, few could touch him. He was a really good writer. Yeah. Um, though I do often agree with Leonard Malton, who loved this film, except for the score. <laughs> I'm gonna keep making fun of the weird score, and I think it's only it's only it, it's only accentuated by the fact that Ira Newborn has. I've been well aware of his music, but for some reason it really stuck out in this time because like he did the music in a lot of John. Hughes I was gonna films. say he did the music it, in sixteen candles. It feels. Oops, sorry, exactly like a john hughes soundtrack john hughes film soundtrack this is the same like that that moment with Dell. like i've heard that same music swell in all of his pieces Mm -hmm. it's it's uh, perhaps silly and a little saccharine but it makes perfect sense in that you know the it's like seeing a Tim Burton film and like mm-hmm. they use the same ki- same pieces to build the feel that they're identified by and and the soundtrack fit right in there for me. Yeah, and and what what what's what was I think the reason it felt so strange to me is like there uh, there doesn't seem to be a melody with a lot of it. It just it honestly you watch Bob's Burgers, correct, yeah, Nick. Yeah. I imagine if Gene were to grow up and become a musician, he'd be Ira Newborn. <laughs> now I'm. It's like, what happens when I put these sounds together? <laughs> Those aren't pillows! <laughs> you want some burgers and fries! Talking to you, buddy! Hey, thumbs up! Yeah! I got a thumbs up! That's better than a customer! Cool song, Gene! Yeah, you guys sound good! I'm digging it! You happen to be in the presence of child straw prodigies. We're pretty strawsome. That's awesome, but with straws, strawsome? We borrow from a lot of genres! Maybe you guys can use a little wind? You just walk around with that thing? We were at orchestra practice. And hey, why make it difficult when you can make it symbol? Are we punning or are we jamming? Oh. So, because like he did the score for Sixteen Candles, Weird Science, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He did the music in Mallrats and like Ace Ventura. Like, so, like, he he had a shtick. He had a shtick. Like, he like he also did it in uh, the music in the Naked Gun, one of the Naked Gun films, and you know, like he had a shtick. He had a thing, yeah. a style that he did. It just it like so when it worked, it worked really well. When it didn't work, it almost felt like the music in this film was the score. Like, it feel like they took it, it. It's like five different scores and put them all into one movie. There's that, yeah, kind of about kind of 
bit and then yeah. there's the the emotional swell but that also speaks to kind of the divergent tones that we've identified too where it is kind of like raucous road trip comedy but then it'll break for these really like intense emotional scenes that um mm-hmm. so so perhaps that's you know uh reflective of the script yeah, and I often wonder, like, and I said, I'm not. I'm trying not to make this into like I don't like Ira Newborn type of deal because I I do. It's just what did he, he do to really, you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But I just kept thinking, it's like, oh man, what if what if this film would have had to say the score of like not not the score, but what? It, so I think what makes say a movie like Home Alone, which was written by John Hughes, works so well is it has a really well-balanced score by john williams yeah i i often wonder it's like would of home alone worked with a different score and then i often wonder it's like i wonder what planes trains and automobiles would have been like if john williams (laughs) would have composed it or something but uh both both featuring john candy in an airport yeah (laughs) and actually i was i was noticing a lot of simulators between planes trains and automobiles and home alone i think the house that steve martin lives in looks a lot like it is it it is a different house but they look nearly identical even like the inside like like i I know in my head descends at the end and i know that was a set um but like i kept thinking like man this looks like the same staircase that's Mm -hmm. kevin roto sled down Um, it has a lot of the same cast members. I feel like the red haired lady from, uh, from the marathon car rental scene, who's also in <laughs> yes, Bueller, yeah. I feel like she was in home yeah. alone and yeah, there was just a, a, a lot of, of funny similarities and I was like, Oh, I can see how, you know, he, I wonder, I was kept wondering, like, were they written, like, were they written around the same time? Right. I don't know. I was trying to like put that together. Cause like, I, I want to say they were, seeing... uh, home alone was 1990, I believe. Yeah, ninety ninety one, but I I don't know when they were written. That's true. That's true. Because like technically, if we're talking about like when things were written, John Hughes was gonna direct Breakfast Club first. Yeah. But the studio didn't know if he could handle something so heavy on his first time out, so he knocked out sixteen candles and be like, "Yeah, I'll do this first." <laughs> I don't know. I don't know John Hughes. Nah, <laughs> nah. I wrote sixteen candles. Same. Aren't you happy? John Lovitz playing John Hughes. I think is what I was just doing. <laughs> You know what I was rem- as we were talking about your mom in the beginning of this and I was remembering my I don't know why that struck me as so funny. We're talking about your mom. <laughs> my beloved or you know, it it received some some critical acclaim from the audience. My impression of your mom where she's for some reason really Jewish. <laughs> A Jewish mom yeah. In instead of, I could have just gone really Milwaukee, but <laughs> let's go get some old stuff <laughs> um so anyways going back to what we're, we're talking about like the the structure of the film is definitely unique different different um but i while it's not traditionally what the way these structures work i ultimately think it worked in the film's benefit yeah yep. because like just thinking about the way that this movie is written, I can't personally see a way they could have put Del. I can't figure out a place they would have put Dell's "I like me" sequence anywhere else. Yeah. 
Like, it feels like a, a moment that could have happened later on in the film. I just don't know where. And, and, and I think if they pushed it later, then Dell would have been, seemed more annoying and, yes, and, and less likable. I think by putting that earlier in the film, from that point on, you st- the audience cuts him more slack. Yes, um, and that's which gives kind of what I'm Steve thinking. Martin a chance to, um, because it's it's framed from Steve Martin's perspective. Um, mm-hmm. So you kind of and and he's dealing with this annoying person, and I think if you push that later, then it turns into more of a, um, uh, what about Bob? Kind of like yes. where it's more grinding. Yes. The whole time. And I, while I love White About Bob, it's a very different yeah. style yeah. of movie because, you know, you don't have that that scene that makes you like the characters. And like, is, is, as much as the I Like Me scene is definitely um, a favorite amongst a lot of people, I really... And once again, we're spoiling things. So if you've not seen Planes, Change Automobiles, I apologize. <laughs> the scene where Dell is sitting in his car, in you know, in the middle of the snow, and he's talking to his wife. Oh, yeah. And you're sitting there wondering, like, is she dead? Did she leave yeah, right, Is he just talking right. to her because he needs someone to relate to? Um. Like I, I feel like they did a fantastic job of trickling in that information yep. without showing their hand too early. Because mm-hmm. like even I was when I was talking to Amanda, and she's like, she's like, oh, his, when all set in that his that his wife was gone, she's like, that's why he carries her picture everywhere. I thought it was sweet before, but now it breaks my heart. And I was like, I know this is so sweet. Yeah, his- why am I crying <laughs> during planes, trains, and automobiles? <laughs> His line at the when he's sitting outside in the car at the second motel, it ends with a line, and, and I'm gonna paraphrase, but something to the effect of, "Oh, but but you can't do that anymore, can you?" Where yeah. and it it could very much be that she left him, or that he's on the road so much mm-hmm. that he hasn't seen yeah, her. In a that long was one time. way I potentially took and, it. And yeah. that's kind of what he says in that diner scene too, when he's kind of caught up in his own lie about it. It's like, well, you know, I've been on the road. It feels like, you know, forever. Um, I have. Um, so you start to understand that he's having these feelings of distance from his wife, but you don't know why until Steve Martin mm-hmm. comes back at the end and confronts him. Well, Marie, once again, my dear, you were as right as rain. I am, without a doubt, the biggest pain in the butt that ever came down the pike. I meet someone whose company I really enjoy. What do I do? I go overboard. I smother the poor soul. Cause him more trouble than he has a right to. God, I got a big mouth. <sighs> How am I ever gonna wake up? you were here with me right now 
But I guess that's not gonna happen. Not now, anyway. Yeah. Which that that sequence is hysterical to me because the train just they literally showed in reverse. <laughs> made made even better, but there's a person walking under the L train and he's walking. I did not notice that. Because I was thinking, I was like, wait, how is the train coming back? Because it left that direction. Right? Isn't like, there's no isn't way? Isn't the it L? Uh, was that the L, or was that the M train? Sorry, I I thought it was the. I L thought train. it I was, and I I thought. I, I'm not a downtown Chicago guy, but I thought the L ran in a loop versus uh, Anyways, back and forth. Anyway. I, I do know 100% that that train was going first because <laughs> there was a person walking backwards, like doing like the Bigfoot walk. It's kind of great. Um, and then I will say it's like, well, I, 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 sometimes with older comedies, it's you like sometimes things aren't as funny as they probably were in the 80s if it makes <laughs> sure. sense or in the 70s but i will say i don't think i've seen anything this year that was as funny as the uh you're we're going the wrong yes, way yes 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 that is on one of my notes well and i've seen that was the only part of this film that i had seen before was that that yeah. sequence and they're they're been things that i've seen that were clearly influenced by that so like um like what uh the film dirty work norm mcdonald and Artie lang okay uh i've seen that they're movie. they they go do a, a science experiment kind of like get paid for us to experiment on you and they eat brownies and then they're driving later and Artie lang's like you know i think i feel a slight itch and then it pans over to norm mcdonald in the driver's seat of the car and he's like all red and shaking and freaking out and he looks over and rather than Artie Lane sitting in the passenger seat, it's Adam Sandler dressed as the devil and there's flames <laughs> behind him. And he, I think the line is we eat the pig and then together we burn. <laughs> that was, it was very reminiscent of like turning and looking to see John. first their skeletons and then they're back to normal and then they come back and, and it's John Candy in the devil outfit. Well, yeah. And that car to the other car where the husband and wife, I'm assuming it's husband and wife, are like yelling everything in unison. And, yeah. and at first it's like, okay, you know, you're going the wrong way. You're going <laughs> like, to kill somebody where they, yeah. it, it's unrealistic that they both would have said that in unison that. And when they peel their yeah. fingers out of the dashboard, it's just, yeah, that the rest of it is typical, kind of like you said, 80s, like, oh, yeah, yeah, like, oh, they don't get along and everything. But that was that just is so like comedic brilliance. It, it rode the line too for the entire movie leading up into that point of where you're like, oh, there's, you know, like it's it's absurd and comedic but like in a comic booky way. <laughs> right. And when that happens, like I said, especially this sequence here when I saw <laughs> John Candy as the devil. I nearly I nearly pissed my pants. Cause like I feel like I'd seen that clip before, but with out of context, it's not nearly right, as funny yeah. as the build up going to that point. <laughs> like, come on. That, that, <laughs> even just his face right there. It's killing well, and they say um, when uh, the car tells them you're going the wrong way, and their reaction is they're crazy. How would they know where we're going? <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> okay, thank you. Like what? 
what makes that scene so great is not only that they go in the wrong way and they have all that stuff happen with the car, but then at the very end, like the payoff of the cigar or the 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 fire in the back seat, because like the entire man, time is like man is like it's smoking in the back seat. It's like I know they haven't even discovered that yet. Well, and then that leads up to another moment of like yes. of Dell screwed him over again by. Renting mm-hmm. the car with his card. Yeah, how do you, how do you break a car seat? It can't be done. <laughs> you broke the seat. Uh, I suppose we shouldn't ask on a day like this, but wondering where the idea for all this came from and how you chose John and Steve. This actually happened to me. I left Chicago for New York for a one-day trip, planning to come back that night, and uh, ended up in Wichita and got home five days later. So that's where the idea came from. Really? You never yeah, told I, me that. Well, it just never came up. <laughs> Really? Why would that never come up? I don't get it. John and Steve, just uh, wonder if you could tell us what it was that attracted you to the project. Want to go first? The script. The script. The script immediately. You read the script and you laugh and you go, yes. There were two scenes that made me really want to do it. The scene at the rental car and the scene in the car with John where he's yeah. adjusting his seat. That whole sequence I just thought was great. I think any actor, comedian especially, is, is really interested in good scripts. And when this kind of talent comes along, like, Took me two and a half years to write Roxanne. It took me three days to write Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Or four, or did it go into five? <laughs> this is the fastest writer in the world. When I first read it, it was like, finally, oh my God. So I was laughing, I was crying, and I was just so brilliant. It was as if I wrote it myself, and I'm, my lawyer's working on that now. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, that entire like car sequence was like, for me, the funniest part of this film. I love how like, uh, when we I was watching it, uh, Raina was doing some baiting. So she'd pop in and watch for a few minutes and then go back. And, and at some point, she's like, when was this made? And, you know, and she's like, why don't, did they not, did, did they not have car rental places back then? Because that seems like that. And like five minutes later, they went to the rental car place. <laughs> That was after the train know, and the like, bus and the... my my favorite. I love that when they were like trying to figure out like okay, you know the 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 uh, airplane is not going to work and logically, I feel like everyone would be like, "Well, go rent a car," right. and they're like, "Trains!" <laughs> like, and I'm thinking, "Oh, this must be because <laughs> no one no one's instinct is trains anymore." I don't even know if it was in the eighties, right. but I feel like it was far more than it is now. Uh, but no, like uh, th- this film looks did a great job of just like building up to that point where it felt earned yeah like uh like the insanity of that scene and um with because it wasn't doing it frequently throughout yeah like that's just personal for like personal like preferences for me it's like i try to think it's like i guess i try to think of like i enjoy movies that i can wrap my mind around how i could write it I'm not a big zany comedy guy, so I think if I'm going to sit down and write a comedy, you know, it's like, what's all these crazy situations? No, it's like, for me, it's like, okay, what's the story? What am I trying to tell? And then, you know, maybe I can have a really crazy moment somewhere in the middle of the film. But, like, ultimately, while there's not a lot of plot to this film, the story is pretty simple. You know, these two guys who don't like each other, who have a common goal of getting to the same place. I also kind of like the idea that John Candy's been on the road for so long that when he started, you could actually make a living selling shower rings, shower curtain rings. Even in an airport or where I forget where they were at this point, a bus depot or something like he was selling him his earrings and shit to make some extra cash. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, man, I, he probably would have gotten it's me to probably... buy some shower curtain rings. The man's a born salesman. <laughs> Another Home Alone connection I just remembered was the old guy on the airplane who was sleeping on Steve Martin's shoulder. He's the same old guy from the airport in Home Alone who's like, my wife has earrings. Oh, really? Nice a whole shoebox full. <laughs> Come on, Irene, they're boarding. Oh, this gal has offered us two first-class tickets if we go Friday. Plus a ring, a watch, a, a pocket translator, $500, and the earrings. You love the earrings. She's got her own earrings, a whole shoebox full of dangly ones. Come on, come on. No, but... Dangly ones. I always remember the way he says dangly. <laughs> I want to be that old guy yep, that, yep. you know, gets hired to, like, say dangly. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I think what that really... In- that that scene we were talking about where the tar ends up in flames because oh you mean that one scene? right there um because so much of the film is just <laughs> as was hey michael let me ask you was john candy ever the devil in this film oh i don't know this <laughs> devil um <laughs> like this new capability <laughs> We're having fun with our toys. Um, because so much of the film is kind of the same repetition of they made some progress and then something happens. And then they made some progress mm-hmm. and annoy each other and then something happens. I think with that really intense comedic scene did was allow for like afterwards this kind of deep breath and reset. Um, yeah. To Because otherwise I think it would have just felt very monotonous yes Um, because like after that scene when they get to the next hotel and Dell doesn't have enough we have that great moment where like Dell's he's like i i've got a casio (laughs) casio uh where he doesn't have the money for a for a room that uh uh, you know he sleeps out in the car, and like you could tell that obviously there's still friction between them because it, he do, um, Neil doesn't let him into the room right away. Um, but that is the scene where we they they spend enough time relating to yeah. each other. I feel like they actually have a real conversation, yeah. you know. And Neil has that line where he's like, "Oh, you really love your wife, don't you?" And you know, he's, he's like, "Love's not a big enough word." Yeah. They also have the. Uh... Steve Martin's kind of, it's a bit of a throwaway line, but I think it's really important for his character. The, I feel like I'm at summer camp Mm -hmm. that that's Steve Martin kind of realizing that it's just not about all of his annoying things. Like they're, it's his recognition that they're going through something together. Yeah. And I also think I took that line as well as not only just that, but that, this is the first time in a long time that Steve Martin's character has gotten a chance to escape his sure, life. Sure, yeah. You know, not to say he doesn't like his life, but he has a really stressful job. He seems like he's away from his family a lot. He's always on a rush, always in... And while he's kind of in a rush to get back home, it's definitely at a slower pace. And, you know, he's not had a chance to really get to know someone. In yeah. Um... Uh, oh, I know what I was going to bring up. Uh, that second motel, um, I actually grew up around where that uh, location is. The El Rancho. That's a real place? That is a real place. It is either no. it is either in or just north of Gurney, Illinois. Does it, look, does it still look like that? Uh, like, the last time I was in Gurney, which was probably 
20 years ago now. Holy shit. It's that I live close to that. Yeah. Yep. It's You should get me the address. I, and I'm going to go and take some shameless picture show pictures yes. of me staying outside of being like. If it's still there. Yeah. I don't know what that but, face was. Like. <laughs> but I used to pass it all the time. That's awesome. And like, I bet that was kind of a cool moment. It's like, hey, I used to pass it yep, all the time. Totally. And this place meant nothing to me until just now. Well, I knew, like, I had heard that it was, oh, that's the motel from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Like, so I um, I kind of knew that it was coming. Okay. Oh, that's sorry, I bumped cool. my mic. Did, when, when they went to the first motel, were you like, that's not the place? I, I was like, oh, it was more of, is that it? Is that it? And then once I saw the, it's it's that sign, that starburst sign mm, and the el rancho mm, mm. that's it's like rancho. that's the one <laughs> cool um yeah do it was what else is on your notes nick for a person who didn't um, take any notes you also I, have a lot i of was notes. taking them as we were uh watching the clips i'm like oh and i want to make sure i mention that uh the other thing goes back to what i said at the very beginning about um kind of the i don't think the film gets enough credit for being as weird as it is like the other no no one talks about the weird the the weirdest most unsettling part of the film for me was actually the ending um so when they finally get back to steve martin's home oh yes and the wife descends the staircase and it's that weird soundtrack again and she's like ethereal in a weird way and hello and they introduce her to Dell, and he's like, "Hello." Like, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if a sequel ever. Hello, Mrs. Page. Right, if a sequel ever came out, it's of like Dell and this dude's wife like running away together. Like, it it was it was so weird for no reason. That scene, did, I kept. Thinking, it was so and like, weird. <laughs> Not even thinking, just like try to be funny, but I was legitimately thinking, it's like, okay, he's a traveling salesman. Has he been here? <laughs> right? The, um, the, and it's, and it's not like, you know, a situation where they could be like, oh, you know, um, Neil has told me so much about you. It's like, I don't think they've even the, ever they, spoken on the phone other than how much he annoyed, like, and the wife has so little to do in this film. They just kind of cut back yes. to her to show her alone in bed. And she's so expressionless yep. that, like, I don't even feel like she's necessarily missing the fact that her husband's not here. I kept thinking, it's like, man, you guys could have cut 10 minutes out of the movie if you would have just it cut was. the wife out, it, to be honest. Because she's, she's not adding yes. anything. And then that final scene is just, like, yes, now I want to see plane, more planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> and see, like and find out what that relationship is because it makes no sense to me. I think that it was supposed to be this like where this journey is finally over. We're all finally home. We've invited this. Now we know Dell's issue and he's been invited. And I think it was supposed to be this big relief moment, but it didn't end up playing like that. It just ended up playing super awkwardly. And I think you're right. Maybe some of it was, that the wife storyline never really turned into anything. Like I didn't, like I was every time he would try and call her or they'd talk, I I was trying to figure out like, is she mad at him? Are they, did they have a troubled relationship? Does, does she just miss him? Like Like, it didn't, I couldn't figure out any of it because like, I feel like you could have easily said any of those things and would have felt correct because she wasn't reacting. It's like Alfred Hitchcock one time did an experiment where he showed an actor 
ex- you know, he was, he was showing the power of film editing. Okay. By showing an actor who who is just expressionless. He's just sitting there like this. And he showed them and asked people, you know, what is he thinking? And they're like, oh, he's not expressing anything. And then he'd show them, you know, and he'd show different audiences this. You know, one audience, he'd show the actor and then juxtapose with some food. And then an actor juxtaposed with a woman. And an actor he's hungry. He's horny. Coffin. Yeah. <laughs> he's dying. And it's like, and they're all saying that, like, he's he's expressing these emotions that he was. It was the same picture every single time. Now, the third way is what one might call pure cinematics, the assembly of, of film and how it can be changed to create a different idea. Now, we have a close-up. Let me show what he sees. Let's assume he saw a woman holding a baby in her arm. Now we cut back to his reaction to what he sees. And he smiles. Now what is he as a character? He's a kindly man. He's sympathetic. Now, let's take the middle piece of film away, the woman with the child. But leave his two pieces of film as they were. Now we'll put in uh, a piece of film of a girl in a bikini. He looks girl in a bikini he smiles what is he now the dirty old man he's no longer the benign gentleman who loves babies that's the difference that's what film can do for you or you for it as it were and i I call it the ryan gosling effect (laughs) i love ryan gosling because i like to poke fun at him i love that video of people trying to feed ryan gosling food yes me too yeah <laughs> but like i i, I that's what i honestly kept thinking about the the wife's story is like you know we are adding more to the film to her character than the film is than juxtapose of what happened around that time like i i get the feeling based on steve martin's character that maybe they're having problems and that he's not around as much and so i'm kind of adding that to the character but she's given us nothing to go off of and like even just when we were watching back on that clip of Dell's scene, am I boring no, you, sir? I, I'm, I am exhausted. <laughs> when we we're cutting back to that scene of you know Dell's you know big moment, and they would just cut they cut back to her twice in that six minute clip of her just laying in bed and watching TV. Yeah. Like why? <laughs> why is this needed? What are you feeling right now, lady? Show me some food so I understand. <laughs> yes. And then, like, we got to see her, his daughter once, and she was, like, doing a performance or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, this just feels like strange structure, strange editing the, to me. I, there might have been reason. I just can't figure it the out. The son was um, one of the Lawrences. I think Matthew Lawrence. Probs. Yeah. Probs. <laughs> it's like how um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal plays a young son in City Slippers. I love those. Holy shit, that yeah. is Jake Gyllenhaal. When he's at the party and like shows him popping his arm shoulder out of its socket. Elijah Wood is in Back to the Future 2. Yep. You mean you have to yep. use your hands? That's like a baby's toy. <laughs> yep. I love those little uh, those little, you know. I know, I do too, especially when they're like, you so know, like oh, that's a big name actor now. <laughs> um 
But no, ultimately, other than like those weird little quirks, like I really like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and I can see it being a film that I return to. And I can see for people who probably grew up with this film why it can definitely it's definitely comfort yeah. food for some. Well, it's it has heart. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, and it's honestly, and that's what John Hughes does so yeah. well. The man can write dialogue like no one's business. And even now, when I go back and watch some of his films, and while some of his films have not aged the best. Some of them are kind of automatic in some way. <laughs> Sorry, I, yes. have, I, have a, I have a handle I, in my throat. And I still kind of have a soft spot for that film, despite when I watch it. It's like, oh, this is cringy. I, I actually but, have not seen it. It's on my list. Well, I would recommend it. However, the way I just I, I would describe it is for everything really good he does in that film, he does something equally as <laughs> not good. And in the 80s, it probably wouldn't have been... been you wouldn't bat an eyelash at it, but... You know, it's even like when I just rewatched Weird Science. It's still one of my favorites of his films. I just have to accept the fact that it's it's very much of its time. Right. It's two nerdy kids who, two nerdy kids who, you know, can't get a date, so they make a woman <laughs> through their computer that is the living embodiment of sex for I, them. I actually, though, I only saw the film once when I was young. I grew up on the Weird Science TV show. TV show? Yes. <laughs> I loved that show. I don't remember. If it was I know. Any, yeah. I don't remember if it was any good. But I'd be really it, no, interested like, to revisit it. It's you know weird. Science is a perfect example of like it's like you know some of these themes are kind of questionable, but one the dialogue is extremely well written. The it's all well acted, and there is kind of a nice sweet message in the end. And that's sixteen candles the same way. You know, pretty in pink like. I love his films, but I have to acknowledge the fact that they are not necessarily of our time. Yeah. But, you know, he he redefined the genre. And I think that's why Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is actually kind of a big deal. Because here's a man who had five successes in a row. Like I said, once again, he first film he directed was Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club, and then Weird Science. That's a hell of a three-hitter right <laughs> yeah. there. He wrote Pretty in Pink, didn't direct it. He then directed Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He had three to four films right there, all based around... <laughs> Yeah, based around Ferris Bueller. No, he had, you know, these films based around the lives of teenagers. And what he did so well with those films is that he'd collaborate with the teenagers he's making these films with so they feel authentic. And then here he comes with this movie with a string of movies that are definitely more embodiment of adults. And being an adult now, like I resonated a lot with this film because I can see, get a lot of the frustrations that they're feeling yeah. you know he did plane strange and automobiles he then did she's having a baby and then uncle buck like you know it's like he went from this trilogy this quadrilogy of teen movies to then like you know i want to now explore what it's like to be right adult. i liked what you had it's kind of interesting yeah. i liked what you had said i i didn't necessarily pick up on it but i felt it in you know in subconsciously and i thought it was really poignant when we were talking about uh, his line about this feels like summer camp um, as, as an adult, as a parent with a career, like my, until COVID hit and everything got disrupted where it's still the same things, just different. Like your life kind of becomes this daily cycle of doing the same things over and over and over again. And so that feeling of, as chaotic as this trip was, it was something different. And I had to, mm -hmm. I had to 
forge through it with somebody new and I had to work with somebody that I've never worked with before like that that resonated with me um when you said that you know that that's a I started to lose my train of thought and don't know how to wrap up the that idea but um I thought that was really poignant of you to to pick up on that thank you thank you so was there anything else you wanted to talk about planes, trains, and automobiles? Or if the one person who's watching live currently has anything to say that they want me to flash on the screen. They're like, make, uh, was make your show we... shorter. Fuck you. Never. We'll never make it shorter. Um, no, I think that's that's kind of, that, that's all my notes. I trust them all off. Um I almost, I, I almost feel like I want to like go through like John Hughes's like filmography and like try to pick up on these trends because, because it's interesting the films he chose to direct versus the ones that he just wrote. Okay. Like, like, uh, like Home Alone, it definitely has his, his fingerprints all over it, but it's very different than the films that he chose to direct, and it's interesting. Like he after Uncle Buck, which is nineteen eighty nine. He hadn't directed another film until he made until the movie Curly Sue in 1991, and then he never directed again. Huh. I'd I'd be interested to know if there's any kind of connection or intention, appreciation or otherwise, of John Hughes for Kevin Smith, um, because you, yes. you mentioned the soundtrack piece, and then in um, uh, Dogma. There's the line about uh, how Selma Hayek's character inspired 19 of the top 20 grossing films of all time, uh, mm-hmm. except for the the one where the burglars get in and the boy and ah, had nothing to do. Yeah. It was a piece of shit. Had nothing to do with it. Um, now that I'm saying some of these references within you know the the Red Bank films, I wonder if there's more to that or or uh what the deal is uh i can definitely tell you that yes he did he does have a huge fondness for okay. john hughes to the point where john hughes is even thanked in mall rats okay um and i only know that because i just rewatched mall rats i i got a, a a a review copy of it for one of our sponsors nice. so i just rewatched it and you know obviously ira newborn scores Mallrats <laughs> and but uh, no, Kevin Smith has talked quite a bit on his podcast about the the emotional weight that John Hughes and his oeuvre of work has put on his own writing, where he found that, hey, you can write something that's funny and relevant, but also has heart to it. It doesn't have to just be a one note thing, because in a lot of ways, John Hughes redefined or even defined like invented the teen drama as we know it and kevin smith has talked a lot about like really respecting and looking up to the man and um i know like i think he interviewed john hughes wife at one point for his podcast and he like he he really respected the fact that john hughes pretty much said that when he at one point he want he wanted to retire from hollywood and just spend the rest of his life planting trees (laughs) And Kevin Smith really just loved that. And no, th- th- he definitely has a fondness for his work. Cool. Like I don't want to speak for the man, but I've heard him talk about this subject enough to, that to I weigh know in it to on be it. True. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and they're both filmmakers that have a real ear for dialogue. 
Um, yeah, and you, I can almost see like I can you not necessarily in Clark's, but I can you, in movies like Mallrats, movies like Chasing Amy, I can see the John Hughesian effect sure. that and, he had on you know him. Chasing Amy also is a is one that is a product of its time that viewed from today's lens is pretty problematic <laughs> in the same way yes. that John Hughes. Some there's still Hughes some was. good stuff in that. I just rewatched that <laughs> film this year too. And there's some good stuff still in that film, but a little cringy. It was my favorite for the longest yeah. time. And it's still a really good film to an extent. <laughs> um, but I, I, he doesn't mean any harm. And, and I, I think that's yeah. true of, you know, and the the path to hell is paved with good intention, but yeah, but then, really, like, it's about us think about, evolving and understanding yeah. these things more. And if and if you just think about it, like John Hughes, like where he's from and his characters are set, yeah, he's from Chicago. He's an Illinois boy, but he kind he comes from the the rich the ritzy suburban yeah, area of North Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> yep, and then he also like his. It, you know he grew up republican and granted republican in the 80s was it, right yeah the the Reagan um, republicans you know, yeah or you know like i think the way that it was been described to me is they were in a lot of ways like socially liberal but very fiscally yeah. conservative you know where they weren't like you know we're not even gonna get out <laughs> you know, it's but Politics. you know he's not like a, he's not a republican in the way that they are necessarily today but you know a lot of this a lot of his view of the world came from where he grew up and probably the same way with Kevin Smith. Like Kevin Smith, I almost feel like probably had not met another, had probably not met many gay people growing <laughs> up in a small town in, Red Bank. in New Jersey. I know his, his brother is, and his, I, I think one of his friends is, but you know, I don't want to speak for the man, but yeah. like John Hughes, like, you know, and some of his, you know, racier humor or his, um, um, you know, some of his homophobia in Sixteen Candles was unfortunately very par for the course in the eighties, where it was not uncommon to call someone the F word. Well, and you know, it is like I, I think a lot of at, at least from the the chasing Amy part, where you're, you know, best of intentions. I, I think it's a really strong example of why we need better representation when it comes to writers and directors telling their story like chasing amy is a perfect example of a straight person trying to write a story about gay people mm -hmm. like it it's just it's not you especially back then there's i think a broader understanding now you know if you take the opportunity to pay attention and learn and listen um it was yeah. harder 30 years ago um but um it they we need to give uh people of color um sexual orientation like they need to tell their stories that yep. <laughs> that ain't for us <laughs> and nope. and that nope. that's not to say that we should be you know writing whitey mixed straight male like you know that we need damn you just you guessed the title of my next <laughs> <laughs> white straight male um but uh you know be better advocates <laughs> listen mm -hmm. yeah Under i think that's kind of a perfect way to there end there we go listen listen up yeah where's my finger going? uh so be 
before we wrap up for this episode uh like i said i don't know when if this is coming first if this is coming second i have a, a, a i have a, a topic episode already recorded i have this they're both gonna be pretty stretching it to try to get them out <laughs> by the end of november i'm just gonna throw that out there now uh but we also do have a christmas episode plan. technically two, two christmas, christmas episodes i don't know if we're gonna get to both <laughs> of them we can definitely try I might need your help editing one of these episodes yep. if we want to fit those other two episodes in. <laughs> um, um, do you want to talk a little bit about what our sure. Christmas yeah. plans are, Nick? So, because uh, they're your ideas. A, the the topic episode, kind of excited about. We kind of hinted at it a little bit as we brought up Die Hard. Um, this is a fuck Die Hard. <laughs> a conversation that um, I tend to have in my circles annually around this time is what defines a christmas film is is die hard a christmas film it <laughs> very nice is it's a wonderful life a christmas film is miracle on 34th street a christmas film you know what makes a christmas what film? is it that that um that made something a Christmas film. So Michael and I are each going to bring five films to the conversation. And we're just going to have a brief little uh, conversation on each about where we feel it fits on the spectrum. Yep. And it, you know, it's not necessarily, we're, we're not necessarily trying to go for like, you know, deep dive right. type things. We're just trying to bring like, you know, it could be a film that is traditionally considered a Christmas film and be like, is it a Christmas film and why? And that ties into the, the movie we're going to dissect in December nick i don't remember what we said <laughs> you had wanted been, to do meet me in st yes Louis. yeah yep yep that's i totally remember that. and i was like why aren't we doing the brady bunch <laughs> a very brady christmas i still have not watched it i've been waiting mm. i've been like i've been holding off every year but like oh, is this gonna be the year i watch a very brady christmas and oh maybe next year i'm gonna make i'm gonna make some i'm gonna make a, a nice cup of tea in the brady bunch mug you gave me and... yay uh but no we're gonna watch watch meet me in st louis which off the which most people are like the fuck is that <laughs> one it's a musical starring judy garland and, mo- and people who know what the movie are probably like the fuck is that a christmas movie and we want that's part of that our part topic. of the discussion is it a christmas film because there is a very prolific christmas sequence i in that film. i know of the film through um a film that we've already discussed for a christmas episode uh the family stone and there's a moment on Christmas Eve where one of the daughters, the adult daughters, is up late, all bundled up. One of her sisters asleep next to her, and she's watching Judy Garland sing, I think, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, whatever song she sings then. Um, and they have a quick little I love this film kind of conversation before they mm-hmm. all go to bed for the night. And it does. It feels really Christmassy, but I've only seen that tiny little moment. So that's what we're gonna do. So, and then obviously, if the what what we ask of you uh, is if there's anyone listening or watching who they have Christmas films they want us to talk about and weigh in, bring them to the table. Yeah, Yeah, we'll probably do that topic episode live. Ooh, because this has been a fuck a lot of. It's been a lot of fun. Yes, and it was easy to do, and we have technically like twenty hours a month for free on Streamyard. We don't we don't do this that often, so that'll be easy. so I think that'll be a fun episode. We got to do a little bit of work and uh, you guys will hear from us very soon. Right. So Nick. Yes, sir. Do we have two words? For, do we have two words? For I sure hope so. Well, let me throw out a guess as to what those two words would be. Is it 
watch movies. movies. <laughs> yeah. We'll sync it up and post. Oh, it'll make it work. <laughs> okay, guys. Thanks for watching. Bye. 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 And broadcast. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Easton, Maryland, is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers, and is more often than not edited by Michael Byers. Any TV or YouTube versions of the show to date have been edited by Nick Richards, Tyler Hanna, or Dina Villani. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration from Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed, and our new kick-ass logo was designed by Amanda Byers. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors at Mill Creek Entertainment and Vinegar Syndrome. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links to all these tremendous folks, as well as the show, in the description below. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe.